Our Father, we are indeed thankful for the privilege of coming together this morning. Thank you for the believers who gather this morning to worship Jesus Christ and to study your word. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine our minds and show us the truth. We thank you for the words that Daniel wrote so long ago. Lord, we still find meaning and purpose and guidance for our own lives in these words. So I pray that you would use your word to conform us to the image of Christ that we might be more pleasing to you. And may we uh, give you acceptable worship this morning as we work through the scriptures and then as we go through the worship service. May you be praised in all things, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So this is week number five in our study in the book of Daniel. And last week we actually finished chapter one and you know there we saw the story of Daniel and his three friends by the really by the grace of God not having to eat the king's choice food or drink his wine as they went through their three years of training really indoctrination brainwashing um, but God protected them uh, the scripture actually says he gave them wisdom and knowledge in all branches of literature and language. And so by the blessings of God, these guys were able to learn and to study and to gain understanding. And because of that, when it came time for them at the end of their three years to be interviewed individually by Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and his three friends um, were better than all the rest. They um, knew more, they gave better advice, uh, they answered apparently Nebuchadnezzar's inquisition uh, better than anybody else. And so because of that, God, um, Nebuchadnezzar put them into his personal service. And so these guys, all four of them, were to be close to Nebuchadnezzar and able to communicate with him able to be in his court uh, whenever they pleased. We'll see that in um, chapter two this morning as we work through what God did there. And so the, the question could be asked, um, did God bless Daniel and his friends because they determined in their minds to not defile themselves? It's a reasonable question. Um, was God responding to their faithfulness to him or was that not the case? And I mean, you can ask the same question in our lives today. Does God respond to the faithfulness of his people and therefore causes them to be blessed? And I mean, that's a hard question to, to ponder in your mind. And it's easy reading Daniel to come to the wrong conclusions about that, to say that God's blessings in Daniel's life were a result of Daniel's faithfulness to God. And I don't think you can say that. Um, that may be true, but it may not be true. Um, we can, we can as, as we think about this, you can think of myriads of people who have been faithful to God 
during their lives who have done what he desired for them to do, but things did not go well in their lives. There have been many people who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, and certainly we wouldn't consider that to be a good outcome of their faithfulness thinking in human terms. So it's possible to be faithful to God and yet things not appear to be blessings as we think about them. And you can't obligate God to do anything that you would consider to be a blessing because you've been faithful to him. Although there are myriads of people who think that way and believe that way and teach that way, that if you're faithful to God, then he is obligated to be um, blessing, pour out blessings on you. And that is not true. The scriptures in no place teach that, that if you're faithful to God, then things will go in the way that we consider to be blessings. Now, we do know that God always works everything in the life of the believer for the good, for that believer's good even. But that doesn't mean that that matches what we consider to be blessings. Because sometimes the best thing for a believer is to go through hardship so that you can learn lessons and, um, about the scriptures and about God that come only by suffering. And so was God being faithful to Daniel and his friends uh, by blessing them? I think it was in, better to say, it was in the providence of God. It was in his ordained plan that he had purpose. I mean, think about it. These four guys were captives. They weren't in their homeland. They weren't with their families. They weren't with their people. They had been taken off into exile. But yet God worked that for their good. So you can't say that everything was going the way that they would have thought were blessings. But we do see the hand of God in the lives of Daniel and his friends of blessing them by first giving them uh, compassion in the sight of those who had them in captivity and then also pouring into them knowledge and intelligence so that they could uh, be better than their contemporaries. That clearly is the doing of God. The scripture says that explicitly. But that doesn't mean that God was responding to their faithfulness. So you can't, you can't come to that conclusion. You can come to the conclusion that God has a providential way and a will that he is going to work regardless of what people do, but often God uses the faithfulness of people to accomplish his will. And, and it's not for us to choose and decide whether God is blessing people because they're faithful. We, we see a lot of people, matter of fact, the scripture speaks to it, who are evil men and do evil things who prosper in the eyes of the world. That happens every day in all kinds of ways. That certainly doesn't mean that God is the one who's pouring out blessing on them. Maybe he's even allowing them to get what they want to be a curse to them. So we don't know those things, and we can't come to those conclusions, and we can't obligate God to do anything because we're faithful to him. Now, I do believe that certainly in your spirit and in your mind 
and in your um, attitudes that God will always cause a true believer as they obey God to be joyous, to overcome bad situations. That's definitely true. But that isn't so much the blessing of God, but the relationship that we have with God. And so I, I just wanted to address that because many people get it wrong that God was blessing Daniel because Daniel was being faithful. And I don't think you can come to that conclusion. Right. Because they think that they have done something wrong. With reality, I love the way Paul says it, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. So Paul didn't really answer the question to Moses either. No. Yeah, and, and, and even Paul didn't know whether um, it was because he was faithful to God or God. I mean, it was clear that God arrested him in the middle of the road and poured out grace on him. He knew that and that he was undeserving. He knew that. And that's our attitude, that we're undeserving. Why would God choose me? Right. Yeah, and, and, and God will um, be satisfied in his wrath with people who are uh, do evil and who are opposed to him. It may not come in this life, but it will happen. So we may not see it, and, and our perspectives are so narrow and so shallow compared to the wisdom of God that we, we simply don't know. You know, Jesus in teaching said, um, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, they will pour into your laps. And so does that, if we give to God, does that obligate him to give to us? No, because just a few verses later in the scripture, Jesus would say um, that the, the good man does good out of his heart. And so it's the heart attitude that God looks at and judges, not so much what we do, what we say. Clearly, um, those are to be under control, but it's the heart attitude and the motives. If you give to God just so he'll give back to you, that's not going to happen because that's, wrong. that's not the good man pouring out of his good heart treasures. Those are wrong motives. And yet, if we give, as God says, uh, that he loves a cheerful giver, then the odds are he's going to give back to you. But we can't obligate him to do that. Part of it is we need to get our minds out of this kingdom. Yeah. And into the eternal kingdom where all that he does promise will be fulfilled in us. Yeah. 
Well, and, and it's very difficult to get your mind out of this world and into the kingdom of God. I mean, Paul had done heinous things against the Christians. And yet he says, forgetting what was behind and looking forward. So you can't do anything about what's been done. And, and Paul acknowledged that, although I'm sure he struggled with it, of what he had done, yet he says, forgetting that and pressing forward. And that's all we can do. Forgetting what has been behind us, continue to be faithful, continue to do what God wants. You, there are blessings in that within themselves, and yet you cannot obligate God to do anything that we would consider to be blessings. So just orient our minds rightly as we go through Daniel. Daniel understood that. I mean, his friends will explicitly understand that when they come to the fiery furnace and they say whether God would have us to live or to die. They didn't know if they were going to die, yet they said we will not worship the idol. But they didn't know if God was going to bless them in that or not. And yet he used it to reveal himself to a pagan nation. So you just don't know. And you can't read into the scripture what is not there. And we have to be careful about that and the way we think about things. Okay. So this morning, moving toward chapter 2. This is a, another story um, about what happened in the life of Daniel. Again, writing in third person writing some 70 years later, 60 at least, um, about what had happened to him when he was a youth. And so we'll just read um, the first set of verses here and see if we can't walk through them and glean what the scripture is trying to teach us. So beginning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call all the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that you do not that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. <coughs> Excuse me. For if you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed, therefore tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me 
its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Okay, so here's the first part of the story and uh, it seems a little ridiculous but nevertheless, Daniel writes about what actually happened. So as, as we begin to walk through this, um, there are what some people would call a contradiction in verse 1. Because Daniel writes, gives us a time frame reference, and he says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, We've talked about this, but it's good to be reminded about it, that we know that Daniel was trained for three years. We also know that when Daniel was taken captive, it wasn't actually done by Nebuchadnezzar. It was done by Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolosar. And, but, Along the way, or very shortly thereafter, Nebuchadnezzar died, and Nebuchadnezzar was coronated as king. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar's reign and Daniel's captivity run in the same time frame. They both started about the same time, or immediately adjacent to one another. Okay, so... Daniel, for his first three years in Babylon, we know, was trained, right? He says that, that the time for their training and indoctrination was three years. And so how can it be that this happens in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar when we can see later in the story that Daniel has free access to go into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he would not have had that during his three years of training. He only had that privilege because Nebuchadnezzar put him into his personal service. And so Daniel was all the time around Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel and all three of his friends were always around Nebuchadnezzar in his personal service. So this has to be after the three years of the training because it was at that time that they began to serve Nebuchadnezzar. So how do you reconcile that? And, you know, the answer I've told you before is not that difficult, that the Babylonians considered the first year of someone's reign as the reign of ascension, as when they ascended to be the king. And then after that, they started numbering the years, and they would say the first, the second, the third 
year of his reign. So you had the year of ascension, and then you had the first, second, and third, and so on years. Now, that sounds a, a little strange at first, but then you think about it, we do the exact same thing. When a baby is three months old, you don't say he's in his first year, right? You say he's three months old. And when he's nine months old, you say he's nine months old. And then somewhere in there it changes. When they're 15 months old, sometimes you say they're 15 months old. Or sometimes you simply say they're one. When actually they're in their second year. But you call them one, right? And when he's a year and six months or a year and nine months old, you don't say he's in his second year. You say he's one. And then when his second birthday comes, oh, then he becomes two. So then he's called two all throughout his third year. So we do the exact same thing, although we don't think about it that way. So they did the same thing. That at the end of the first year, the king is in his first year of reign, up until his second year, and then he's in his second year of reign. So, but that first year is considered the year of ascension. You know, otherwise, you'd have to call it zero year, right? I mean, I'm 62, and I'm in my 63rd year of life. But I won't be declared 63 until I get to my 63rd birthday, right? So we do the same thing. So it's not so strange that that's the way they would number, because that's the way we number people's years. And so that's the answer. And so this must have occurred very shortly after Daniel and his friends were appointed to the king's personal service, because it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which is really his third year, which would have been the end of Daniel and his friends' training, so it must have happened immediately thereafter. So he has, Daniel and his friends have not been in service very long when the order is given that they be killed because they can't do what the king wants to happen. Now it's interesting to note that although Daniel and his friends were in the king's personal service, that when the conjurers and the wise men and the magicians and all these guys were called together, Daniel and his friends were not included. They're not there when Nebuchadnezzar is talking to these guys. I mean, that's apparent by them not saying anything in those first 13 verses, but in the next verses we'll see that explicitly they had no idea what was going on. So they were not there. Why they were not there, we don't know. But they were not there when all these magicians and conjurers and soothsayers and, um, were all called together to interpret the king's dream. Well, they were very young, but I mean... Well, yeah, and these, these guys would have been in, in, a, in, in the kingdom for years. And he would have been listening to their advice for years. Or at least his dad would have been listening for years and he would have been trained in that way of thinking. So, but yeah, they were young. Um, yeah, they were going to get killed, but yet they weren't there. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and uh, interesting that um, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. So we understand what second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign means. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And when he comes out of the dream, he's troubled in his spirit and he can't sleep. So the question becomes, did he have this dream while he was asleep? Or is it more like a daydream? You know, he's, his mind is just carried away and he, see, and he has this dream, vision maybe, of something that he can't remember when he comes out of it. And so he says, you need to tell me my dream and what it means. Because he doesn't remember what his dream was. And he's explicit here. You can see that in verse 2, the king gave orders to call these guys together. Sorry. Um, somewhere it says to... Okay, and, and then he says... Um, then the king said, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. All right, so the Chaldeans come together not knowing why they're brought together. And the king explains it to them. Now, if you, you know, did he have the dream while he was asleep and then asleep left him? Or did he daydream about it? And let me just show you um, that it's possible that he was not asleep. Look over in Daniel chapter 4. And this is another dream, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar. But notice the way that the scripture speaks of it. Chapter 4 and verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So here you have the same kind of thing. I have, saw a dream, but that dream is not why he's asleep. It's why he's awake and laying on his bed. So the same thing is possible back in chapter 2, that he had some kind of vision and he wasn't actually asleep, and then when he came out of the vision, he couldn't sleep. And so he's a little disturbed because he can't sleep, and he can't remember the dream, and he, can't, he doesn't know what it means. And so he says, if I'm going to be disturbed, I'm going to disturb everybody else. Go ahead. Yeah, and the well, and, and later he says that that tell me my dream so that I may know that you know its interpretation, and so you could say that maybe he didn't forget his dream, but if he didn't, then why didn't he do here what he did later in chapter four where he tells his vision, he explicitly describes it to Daniel so that Daniel can interpret it. So you don't really know 
But both possibilities are valid. That he remembered it and he just wouldn't tell it to them. Or he didn't remember it, so we couldn't tell it to them. You don't really know. This we do know. That when Daniel gets the dream and its interpretation, he was not told by Nebuchadnezzar what it was. So Nebuchadnezzar never tells anybody what his dream is, according to the scriptures. So, okay, so, so moving on, Nebuchadnezzar tells the, the magicians that he had a dream and that he's disturbed in his spirit and he wants to know its interpretation. So naturally, in verse 4, the, they honor the king. They say, long live the king, right? And then they say, tell us the dream and we'll tell you its interpretation. That would be normal. That's what you would expect them to say. How can we give you the interpretation if we don't know the dream? Now, Notice in verse 2 that he, they did slip it in, that when the decree went out to call these guys together, King gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldean, Chaldeans together to tell the king his dreams. That was the command. So they understood that, okay, that when they were called together, they were called together to tell him his dreams. Now, they thought they just wanted an interpretation. But that's not what the command was. So in the command that went forth was the command to come and tell me what I dreamt and then tell me its interpretation. So they had been told that when they first came together, although they do ask him, tell us the dream. Because how could they give him the interpretation without knowing it? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, instead of telling them his dream, <laughs> he says, my command is firm. So he had commanded that you need to come and tell me my dreams. And it's firm. And if you don't, <laughs> then I'm going to kill you, all of you. Actually, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, which would result in death, right? Pretty gruesome. And not only that, but I'm going to make your households rubbish, which means what? He's going to kill all your families, too, and burn your house down and make it rubbish. So I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to kill your wife and your children and anybody else who lives in your house and make it rubbish. So this is pretty severe. This is pretty irrational. Come and tell me my dreams, or I'm going to kill you and all your family. OK? So they understand what he's saying, but probably a little desperate now. And so we move on down. And in verse 6, they ask him, no, in verse 6, he says the opposite, that if you tell me my dream and its interpretation, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a gift, and I'm going to give you a reward, and you'll have great honor in my kingdom. 
But if you don't, I'm going to kill you and kill your whole family. <laughs> Two. Manipulate his father. Yeah. Yeah, very well could have been. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a youth, but he's fairly young at this time. Um, I can't remember if it says how old he was or not. I, I, I won't go there because I, I don't remember. But he's been king for three years. And he was with his father when he invaded Jerusalem and took all, some of the treasures back and took Daniel back and all these other guys so they could be their servants and they could indoctrinate them and brainwash them into being faithful to them. And so, yeah, this is, this is irrational. The king's disturbed and so he wants everybody else to be disturbed. And, he wants, and he's troubled, I mean, in his spirit. So something has him upset. And so in verse 7, they ask a second time. Because what else are you going to do? You have no idea what he dreamt. And yet he wants this interpretation. So you ask him again. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare its interpretation. <laughs> so, I mean, what else are they going to do, right? And the king... Um, loses his cool. I mean, totally. He says, I know you're lying, and I know you're trying to deceive me, and I know you're just trying to buy time. But my command is firm. So a third time, he repeats his command to them, and he says, that you only have one decree, which we know what that is, right? They're going to be torn limb from limb. And then he says, um, therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare its interpretation. So there is that question. Does he remember it or does he not remember it? But he's not going to tell anybody if he does remember it. It's possible that he does. And... <laughs> and then, you know, he doesn't even give them time to, uh, what they answer back and say, King, what you tell, uh, ask us to do is hard. Hard? It's impossible, right? There, there's no possibility that they could make up a dream that the king would believe was true and then give us interpretation. So it's not hard, it's impossible. And they also say that no king or ruler has ever asked his magicians to do something like this before. This is unreasonable, king. You know, nobody has ever asked someone to tell them their dream. You've asked us to give interpretations, but not to actually tell you your own dream. And so they say, um, as Andy said earlier, that no human being can do this. It, only a God could do this. And they're not talking about Jehovah God. They're talking about all their pagan gods. Yeah.
Yeah, you don't know if maybe there was an interlude here. Because, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar just goes off. I mean, totally loses it. That you're scheming and you're lying to me and you've consulted together and you're trying to deceive me and I'm going to kill you because of it. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean... Right. Well, and I would be seriously dancing too if the king told me this, right? I would be doing everything I could to get out of this situation. So finally they simply say, we can't do this. It's impossible. Only a God could do this. And they don't dwell with mortal men. So <laughs> they've, they've said it, right? Only God could do such a thing. And then, curiously, it says the king became indignant. He's a little bit more than indignant. Okay, the, the word actually means that he's full of wrath and anger. And so he's a little bit more than just indignant. He's, um, he's blowing his top. He's totally losing his cool. He's furious with them. And because of this manipulation, this dancing, this trying to put it off. He loses his cool and he says, okay, enough. Um, go and get them all and kill every one of them. Just totally loses it. And he says, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do and I'm going to kill everyone, destroy every one of these wise men in Babylon. And so, I mean, the king gave the order, right? his guards are going to go and execute the order. And so they go to find um, not only these guys who would have scattered, I would assume, I would, <laughs> try and get outside of the city, try and go anywhere where the king couldn't find me. And they included Daniel and his friends. Now, in the next verse, in verse 14, it's kind of interesting. A guy named Arioch, who is in charge of the king's bodyguards, finds Daniel. Now, I don't think Daniel was trying to hide. He had no idea what was going on, what had taken place. And so Arioch would have known Daniel. Arioch is the king's personal bodyguard. Daniel is in the king's personal service. So they would have been around each other all the time. They would have been familiar with one another. They would have known each other. So Ariok goes in and says, hey Daniel, how you doing? I've come to kill you. Really? <laughs> and so Daniel, the scripture says, then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Ariok the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Ariok, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Ariok informed Daniel about the matter. Now, that word urgent is probably not the best interpretation. It would have been better if, he, if it would have said how harsh 
Why is the king's command so harsh? That means, why is he commanding that we be put to death? Daniel had no idea what was going on. So it says that Arioch explained the matter to Daniel. Now Daniel, you know, Arioch would have been all up in arms when he found Daniel, right? Sword drawn, ready to kill him. I mean, he'd been commanded by the king, and if he doesn't follow the king's command, then he's going to be killed himself. And so he was uh, violent toward Daniel. And so Daniel calmly says, what's the deal? And Arioch, because he knew Daniel, says, oh, you weren't there, and explains it to him, what's going on. And apparently Daniel said to Arioch, you know, give me a chance to go talk to the king because we know nothing else about what goes on then. Um, he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason? And then he explains it to him. And then the next thing you see is Daniel going before the king to show that this is after he's been put into the king's personal service. Because you just don't go see the king. You have to be requested to see, you know, the king requests you to come. I mean, that's why all the other guys were before the king, not because they just showed up, but because the king sent out a command for them to come. But Daniel just walks us in. He doesn't, the king doesn't call for him. The king has called for him to be put to death. But there in verse 16, you see, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, this is what the other guys had asked for in somewhat of a way. I mean, basically, they said, you're, you're being unreasonable. Daniel doesn't do any of that. Daniel doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, you're being unreasonable. Only a God could do this. He says, give me a little time and I'll give you the dream and its interpretation. So Daniel, a little different approach than the other guys. Now, does Daniel know he's going to be able to tell the king his dream? Yeah, I mean, he, well, think about it. Either the king's going to put me to death or God's going to give me the dream. It's one or the other. So, I mean, is he being so faithful? I mean, remember that we don't know exactly when, but when Daniel was described with his friends, and it's back in chapter 1, it said, and Daniel even understood dreams and visions. So did he do that during the three years, or is it only after here? We don't know. But possibly Daniel had already interpreted dreams before, knew what they meant. That's a possibility. We don't know that for sure, but Daniel has nothing to lose here. Either God's going to tell him what this dream is and give him his, his interpretation, or he's going to be killed anyway. But apparently Daniel very calmly spoke to Arioch and then very calmly goes in and speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, and this, it doesn't say it, but in the white spaces, this is where God gave him favor, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar gives him some time.
We don't know how much. We actually don't know how long it took for Daniel to get it, get the dream and its interpretation. And, but apparently the king granted him a little time and didn't put the other guys to death either. Everybody was waiting on Daniel. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the four that proved themselves better than the rest and gave him advice that was much better than the rest. It says 10 times, but it's just an exaggeration that there's no comparison between their wisdom, that these are the guys that we have in these stories that he goes after. Go figure. I mean, it just makes no sense. But this is what a king who is the most powerful man on the planet can do. But, and I think it shows that no man can ever be anything more than 666. Yeah. He's made, he's fallible, he's going to make just self-harming decisions and decrees often out of anger. Yeah, and remember, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had grown up in a time when Babylon destroyed um, the Assyrians, when they destroyed all, uh, all the lands around um, Israel, when they captured multitudes of countries and put them down, the, the Assyrians would have been the great powers, and then next to them, the Egyptians. Um, he doesn't actually destroy the Egyptians until after he destroys Jerusalem, so that comes three or four decades later, but he does ultimately do that. So this is a, this is a wicked, violent man. There's no, and, and there's no other way to describe him at this time. Now, I think it changes later, but we're not there yet. So at this time, he's a wicked man who leads a country full of idolatry and has wicked men who give him advice that he's now going to kill all of them. And he's going to kill Daniel and his friends also. Now, Daniel wisely, this is like Daniel would do, goes and gets his friends and saying, let's pray about this. Okay? He's not panicked. He's going to appeal to God. So that's where we'll pick up next week when Daniel and his friends ask God to, it's very interesting, they ask God to give them the dream and its interpretations so that they might not be killed with the rest of the guys. So they're okay with all the other wise men being killed. They just don't want to be part of that. Kind of interesting. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Thanks for your time.